Welcome to the Optimist Futures Podcast, a place to learn from an industry insider with over 20 years of experience in commodity futures and options. Gain insight to the newest technology, platforms, risk management, trading philosophy, and advice about the current state of the futures and options markets. For futures trading platforms, deep discounts trading commissions, overnight margins, and instructional videos, feel free to visit our website at optimistfutures.com. Please remember that this matter should be viewed as a solicitation to trade. Trading futures and options involves substantial risk of loss and is not suitable for all investors. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. You should therefore carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your financial condition. Optimist Futures LLC is not affiliated with, nor does it endorse any trading system, methodologies, newsletter, or similar service. We urge you to conduct your own due diligence. Now, here's your host, founder and CEO of Optimus Futures, Matt Zimberg. Hello traders, this is uh, Matt Z from Optimus Futures. Today I have uh, trading and the mentor coach, Jared Bender. Let me tell you how I came through his name and why I brought him here. Well, first of all, I got his first book, The Mental, Mental Game of Poker. So I was, a few years ago, I've learned how to play poker, maybe it was quite a few years ago, but uh, I kept on losing when I played with friends, right? I only played in the, you know, in holidays or with friends, you know, not, not so much in casinos, but I haven't done so well, and I'm a competitive guy, so I wanted to do well, so I started searching on the internet, and I'm like, okay, maybe there's somebody who can... So I came across this thing because, you know, I mean, training so mental could, could be good. And as I'm reading this book, and he points out, Jared was pointing out the things that poker players experience. I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what traders do. This is exactly, exactly, exactly what traders do. I wish he wrote the mental game of trading. Well, guess what? <laughs> mental game of trading came. And so I'm going to tell you, this is a must-read book. Not, I'm not recommending it because only Jared is here. This is a must-read. But I'm going to tell you the good and the bad. The good is that this book covers a lot of mental aspects that you will need as a trader. But here's the bad news. You will need to read it three to four times to really get it. You can read it and you think you got it the first time around. But I recommend, and maybe I shouldn't call it bad, but I recommend to read it three to four times to be very conscious because every trader makes a different mistake. And you will read this book and you will say, yes, this is me. This is the mistake I'm doing. This is what I want to do. So it's a very methodical book. It's a phenomenal book, and I highly recommend that. So having said that, we'll start the interview. Jared, you're awesome. Thank you <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Okay? If, if I look here and then here, it's because my camera is here. My camera is here, you're here. So um, tell me a little bit, you know, before we start with the main questions, you have an um, MS degree. Tell me a little bit how you got into it, into this whole coaching thing and, you know, working in, in this field. Not by choice, I'd say. Um, <laughs> I wanted to play professional golf. I mean, that was my... 
my sport growing up. I played at a high level in college. And yeah, I basically failed, choked at some big opportunities. I mean, I was a three-time All-American, won nine times in college, but there's a big gap between playing at that level and, and, and the next level. And uh, yeah, my mental game was not uh, up to par, so to speak. So I still had aspirations, and I, I recognized that the sports psychology, golf psychology material that was there at the time didn't help me. And so it was kind of the classic entrepreneurial, you know, I, if I can build a better mousetrap, I have a, something I can sell. And in this case, maybe it actually would help me and I could still play professionally. So I went um, from Skidmore College uh, to Northeastern, got a master's degree in counseling psychology, trying to kind of combine the, the skill set uh, and the tools that therapists have with sports psychology. Um, subsequently got licensed as a therapist, you know, two years, 3,200 hours of practice, basically just getting training. I, it was not what I wanted to do long term, but I understood the value of it. And then once I got my license, I quit my job, flew to Arizona, started working with golfers. Uh, and that's what kind of started my coaching experience. Uh, a couple years later, I randomly made a poker player and kind of come to find out that all of the things I was doing in golf translated to poker and there was no competition. So there were lots of, you know, kind of golf psychologists out there and zero in, in poker. So wide open runway. I kind of take it, uh, take the bull by the horns and run with it. And then, you know, eventually wrote The Mental Game of Poker, which came out in 2011. By 2013, you know, I was getting some decent feedback from traders who had also played poker that, you know, as you said, you change the word poker to trading, it all applies. Uh, and so it wasn't then that I was going to start writing the, the trading book. It, it was not until about three years ago that I started uh, working on the trading book. But I, in that time, I also worked with, um, uh, you know, Team Liquid, who is one of the largest esport organizations in the world. Uh, worked with some pool players, really just kind of honed my system uh, over the last 10 years since the poker book came out. And then the trading book became a way for me to solidify it even farther. So, you know, kind of a roundabout way. And, and yes, you know, long story short, uh, I did end up solving my my golfing issues. Um, but, you know, as as like luck would have it, my my coaching career was taking off. And, you know, it's a it's a big gamble to try to play professional golf when you're going to bankroll yourself. So, you know, working with poker players and traders was, was kind of the safer bet, so to speak. Of course, of course, you always have to focus where the capital is coming from. Well, you know, now that you said your, what your experience is, I can truly feel that when I read this book, it's very practical experience. There's a lot of trading coaches out there or people who try to coach, but they really don't understand that side of the foundation of human psychology. So they give people, unfortunately, not, I'm not saying, you know, some people are not experienced and they shouldn't give advice at all. And I don't think anybody tries to mislead people, but they're not giving them practical advice, you know? And so your book was good that way. And, and by the way, you know, I've listened to it and then I've read it and it just, I think this combination help, helps you know, not to, to understand, so I recommend everybody gets it on an audiobook and read it. It just, it, it, you will catch different things that way. Okay, so I'll, I'll start with the question. Um, the first question I have, you know, and, and I found it really interesting, um, and I'm going to tell you why I'm asking you this question. So uh, I'm asking you this question because a lot of traders say, I'm not a gambler. You know, they say, I don't go to a gambling venue. And I tell them, 
gambling is not about going to a venue. It's a behavior, and it's, if I may call it a, a syndrome, if maybe you disagree. But what I want to do, so I tell them their behavior in front of the screen could lead to gambling. So the question is this. Where are the similarities between gambling and trading, and how do traders avoid the leap from gambling to trading? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think I'd, I'd take your points maybe a step farther and say, like, what is gambling? I mean, to me, gambling is betting on a negative edge, right? The expectancy is, is negative, right? So, you know, yeah, you're playing blackjack. Unless you're counting cards and able to kind of skate by the, the house's ability to regulate it, I mean, you are going to lose money in the long run. That, that's just built into the fabric of the game. Then you treat, you know, other people in different walks of society, and I think we would say that they would be gamblers too, right? Let's, let's take the, the person who has the desire to open up a restaurant and they have no restaurateur experience and actually like running it or managing it or a corner store. And so, yeah, they have to get lucky for things to line up to make that bet actually pay off. So there are, are kind of like kind of segments of society, segments of the economy that I think people end up not thinking about as gambling, but it's actually gambling. And then they look at like poker players and traders sometimes as, you know, being gamblers when it's just because the money and the risk makes it sort of seem like that. And so I think a lot of traders get into the business, just like a lot of poker players get into the business, looking to make easy money fast. And they don't have a system. They don't have a strategy that's proven to actually extract value from the market, right? Whether it's a, the poker economy or the trade, uh, trading market. Uh, if you don't have that, then maybe you're still extracting money, but... The question is, are you getting lucky or not? And if you can't define that you're not or define how you're actually making money, uh, then then you are at risk of, of being a gambler. And, and so I, I think the, the, the long-term goal is to develop an edge that's not a psychological process, right? It's building a system. Now, how you actually do that oftentimes can involve psychology or, or the mental game because it can affect your learning, right? You You might be the kind of person that, you know, if something is not making money within two weeks, you jump to the next system because you don't have the patience and the wherewithal to actually stick with something through the ups and downs to actually kind of learn the upsides, the downsides, figure out the kind of trader that you want to be, the what, what kinds of markets you want to be trading, what kinds of time frames. Uh, I mean, there's so that, that's the cool thing about trading and poker. There's lots of different variants, uh, more so in trading than poker, but you can kind of find a way to make your own mark. And if you don't have a process to be able to do that, then you extreme, you experience a lot of uh, emotional volatility. Um, you know, there's a, a trader that I mentioned in the book who, you know, his, his profession was acting, right? He came to trading because he was looking to make money on the side and eventually got pretty good at it. But his biggest problem was that he kept jumping from one system to the next. He wouldn't last with a system longer than three months. And what we really, and really the breakthrough kind of came when I said, okay, well, at this point, you have learned enough from other people, right? Now it's time to try to create your own fingerprint and, and figure out how you make money and give yourself, you know, a solid six months to go through the ups and downs to tease out exactly how you're going to do that. And one of the biggest things that would prevent him from doing that was overconfidence, was the sense of entitlement, right? Because you'd make some money or he would make some money and then very quickly assume that he got it and then would freak out. When, you know, invariably there would be some losses that would come in the, on the backside or he would make some mistakes. And it, it, he could not wrap his mind around 
the fact that he could go through these ups and downs when he kind of had, quote, like, figured it out. And and that, that idea of, like, figuring out is something that not just traders experience, but, like, it, it I see it across all performance environments. So you can see how, you know, you need to have kind of the right mentality, not just for the actual kind of execution of your strategy, but even in the development of it. So, you know, a lot of times we bring in, you know, these flaws and biases from our own personal lives. But at the beginning, right, if one of the biggest flaws or biases that you're coming in is I can make easy money quickly, right, then you're more likely to be a gambler than actually somebody who's developing a, a system that can prove itself. What you're actually saying is that people, well, people get into trading because it's it, it's easy maybe to establish an account, get a connection, and the buy, buy sell buttons are there in front of you, and they think this is the business. But behind the business, there's just so much going on. You know, you mentioned restaurants, and you know, some people open restaurants and say, well, I love food, so I'll open a restaurant because I love to cook. But do you know how to manage people? You know how to manage part-time people and people go in and out of the industry. Do you know how to manage inventory? Do you know how to manage marketing? The same thing in trading, you know, it's like, okay, well, you'll have the ability to buy and sell, but do you have what it takes, you know, to really manage everything behind the scenes that's coming with it? And they don't know what's coming with it, right? Because it's very glamorized, you know, it's just like, and we'll get to that yeah. when we'll talk about social media. It's a really good point. You made really good points about that. You know, because people get into it and, you know, they, because they want to make money, not understanding really all the ingredients are that are necessary. You know what I find really interesting? Tell me what you think about that. I told somebody once that the market is a place where your strengths will become your weaknesses and your weaknesses might, might even ruin you. So somebody was like highly methodical Highly methodical in real life, like an engineer, maybe it's A, B, and C, and comes into trading, or 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 a computer programmer that every line of code has to match. You know, the marketplace is not exactly like that. Just because you tested a, met a method doesn't mean it will repeat itself. So I find it challenging because even when you have a certain strength in personal life of being methodical, I mean, if you're not organized in real life, I mean, it's just you know, it's just it is what it is. But you know, even when you're organized, you still have to know what to apply out of your nature in this game. So I don't, yes, I think the, the, the key point, whether it's as, is quite as, as exact as your strengths will become your weaknesses or your weaknesses become your strengths. What I would say is that most people who are very skilled and competent at something oftentimes have difficulty sucking, right? It's very difficult for them to go from being great to not being great and build their way back up a b you're right right we we do often kind of bring in a sense of control and command that makes it difficult for us to to uh, you know kind of go through that process and and so yeah i think at times what you think is is a strength is is going to actually become a deterrent or a weakness because it's going to blind you because you're basically making assumptions that what has led you to be successful in the past is going to repeat in this process when it's an entirely new endeavor. You know, and I think that that often plays out as well when you're even trying to go from the simulated market or paper trading to the live market. And and there's a sense of equality between those two things and that doesn't really exist, right? Because we as human beings are are very different. So you take somebody that is coming from uh, an environment that uh, they had a boss, 
Um, they had very clear, you know, kind of uh, guidelines in terms of what, what, what their expectations were. Uh, and then they go to an environment where uh, every day is unique, right? Some people love that, but some people that's actually incredibly challenging. Uh, so, you know, the environmental differences in terms of, you know, prior experience can oftentimes be, you know, significantly problematic. So when I work with clients, you know, some are, are like you're, like what we're talking about now. Others are kind of fresh out of college and don't really have a lot of experience. And so you have like some benefit because their, their naivete is almost an advantage. But then on the other hand, like if, if you take somebody who's, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old, they have a ton of experience that could be used to make them kind of more competent in an environment like this. Uh, it, it's like there's there's good things and bad things to, to both, right? You, you kind of have to figure out what are your kind of independent skill sets that that can be brought into trading from other environments. So take organization. Okay, I'm an organized person. What does it mean to be organized in trading? It's different than somewhere else, right? Uh, I have somebody who's who is perfectionistic or, you know, like the coder you're talking about. Okay, well, so that can be an asset provided we understand what it how it, it would be applied in this environment. So, yeah, I can code, you know, some algorithmic trading, but if I'm too new to it, that's obviously not going to work. So let me let me first use my my diligence to try to systematize. Right. And, and, and formulate a system that I can use and test. But it's not going to be, you know, 100% reliable because that's just not what trading is. And so you start to use kind of the, the basic elements of that strength and then kind of add in additional competencies on top of that, namely, right, having the confidence and conviction that having 40, uh, having 70% confidence that something will pay off is massive, right? And that's different than having 100% confidence because that's what you were used to because the environment was far more controlled. I see. Um Something you mentioned, you know, and I didn't even get to I find it fascinating. You know, you, you mentioned paper trading, and, and you know, it's, I'm a broker, and I'm a licensed broker. So, you know, when, when customers tell me, you know, I'm paper trading now, and I'm building my strategy, you know, they feel like I have a bias because I want to put them in the market right away and stop their paper trading and their development. But what I'm really telling them, you know, without putting paper trading down, I'm like, look, it's really good to learn the platform and the features. And it's important because you know what, once you play the game and you're trading with real money, you want to know how to place orders right and manage them right and know where your equity shows up and it's important. But it's such a gap between navigating an airplane through an Atari game and then navigating it up in the yeah. sky. It's just, it's, it's a totally different sense. You know what happens? It's like you're a customer who is jumping from method to method. Paper traders, they develop a method, they go to the market, it doesn't success, it's not, it's not very successful, and they go back. So they always go to the safe place, you know? They always go to the safe place where it is. So I didn't get to my second question, but I have a question for you. So how do you how do you deal with the traders that you mentor, you know, to move from a paper trading environment where fills are not really considered fills because everything gets failed? Everything is always, you're always in, in terms of your controls, you're always in, have emotional control. And one of the biggest things that, that I have is when traders tell me, I really take trading seriously. And I said, listen, I believe you that you take it seriously. I really do. But, but your body does not experience the same 
chemical reactions, the same DNA, you know, that you should experience when it's real life money. So when you mentor people, how, what do you tell them, you know, when they move from the paper trading environment to real market, to do it slowly and methodically, not to get into shocks? What do you think is the right advice? Well, I mean, I think, I think the first thing we have to, like, make very, very clear is that paper trading is not trading. Yes. Right? It's, it's a training environment. But, you know, and this kind of goes back to a little bit of, of uh, what we were talking about in the first question of the, 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 like the barriers to entry, which you said, right? Trading doesn't have any barriers to entry. You, just, you can open up a, an account and, and if you've got the capital, you can trade. We look at the barriers to entry to playing on the PGA Tour, the barriers to entry to, uh, you know, being a trader who's funded on a prop desk or an institutional trader that has been groomed and selected from a, a high quality university, interviewed seven times, 10 times before they get into a training class, a training environment, and then, you know, self-selected out of, or not self-selected, but selected out of, you know, a class of 50 to 100, you know, trainees and, and five graduate to the actual institutional desk, right? The retail environment is very different. And so I think to do it well, you have to create your own set of barriers to entry where you're not getting overconfident that what you're doing at the outset is actually trading at the level that you see other traders involved in. You got to see yourself as, you know, the junior golfer at eight years old, right? Just learning how to play a tournament because we don't even know what a tournament is. And what does it feel like to be in contention on the back nine, right? Like what is the equivalent of that as a trader? It's like scale down to the smallest bits and do not care about making money for the first six months. Figure out how much you're going to invest in your education and give yourself time to breathe with money on the line that's going to incubate you a little bit, right? condition you to the, as you said, the physical experience of it, the mental experience. Understand that there's going to be a lot of learning from a technical standpoint, not my stuff, right? But then there's also going to be learnings on a, on a mental and emotional standpoint, Right? What flaws and biases are we bringing in from our personal lives? Uh, what, what flaws or biases do we have from a performance standpoint uh, you know, into this trading endeavor? Um, so I, I think you, you have to create those barriers to entry for yourself. Otherwise, it will feel like open runway. And you know, some traders get lucky and they make a lot of money really quickly. But they're the ones that are more likely to crash than not. Some don't. I mean... Look, there's there's always the people that are kind of lucky. They 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 do well early, and they're smart enough to know that they got lucky, and they're smart enough to invest their their you know kind of winnings at that point because it is winnings. These are not earnings. They're getting lucky with the amount of money that's now in their 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 account, and they invest in their education. and They start to do it right. Most are not in that category. Most think that their their P and L or their account size is commensurate with their skill, and and in, and that to me is is incredibly dangerous. So that's one. The other one is we have to, I think in, in large measure, and I talk about this in the book, we, we are like overestimating the amount of fear that exists in trading. It is not as much as it, as it, it seems, right? The, the greed fear index is a great, you know, kind of headline grabber, you know, on CNN business or on CNBC. But like the people in the know understand that it's, it's more complicated than that. And one of the ways that fear is significantly overestimated 
is that we're not attributing trading to a performance environment that is akin to professional golf, to the NFL, to uh, you know uh, uh, other performance environments like you know being a stage actor and having to land lines in front of a house full of people, right? If you are not experiencing anxiety or nervousness or pressure, then you're doing it wrong, right? I mean that you have like that is an, an inherent endemic part of trading your own capital. So if you're not feeling some pressure or heat, then <laughs> you're probably overconfident, and that's a that's a dangerous spot to be in. So let's make sure that in those early stages, as you're moving from the simulated environment to actually trading that you are accounting for the, the, the inherent pressure that you're going to feel and that you don't want to get rid of. Get yourself used to feeling that way and understand that it's not a problem, but oftentimes the problems will emerge because you get distracted by it, right? When I, when I work with athletes, this is more of a concern than it is with traders, but early on, like the pressure is just a distraction. If I told you, all right, Matt, I want you to focus on your feet right now. I want you to feel how your feet feel on the ground and how you're your legs feel in your chair and how your butt feels in your chair. and and that, But while you're doing that, continue to pay attention to me and make sure you get every single word. You're not going to be able to do it very well, right? Because your mind switches between two places. When you feel that pressure, where does your mind go? It goes internal. You stop focusing on the market in the exact same way. Your perception gets altered. You need to know in what ways that perception gets altered. That's the most basic kind of learnings that, that oftentimes gets missed by, you know, people who, you know, just want to take their system that's been proven in the sim and jump into the live market. And if the execution falls short, they think it's the system and not their execution. And it could be both, but let's rule one out. And, you know, the execution is usually the one that's going to fail first. That is really good advice. That is really good advice. I appreciate it. Not <laughs> okay, so... Who could be successful in trading? Here's what I mean by this question. From the people that you have helped, did you, you know what? Not just in trading, tell me about all of them. That were able to conquer the mental game. Who are among those people? So, and my purpose is to help traders, right? I want to know, and, and so I know some people will always Obviously, there will always people who will fall back on their emotions. They will always some will always will have some sort of level of relapse. But the ones that are successful, you know, and I'm not saying you know the most successful, but even mildly successful, were able to improve their game, to stay at, you know in a competitive sport or to stay in trading. What traits or what things did they do? you know, that you think others did not follow? Or what did they have in their, or maybe you think there's something in their DNA that made them this way. So I didn't want to phrase my question in a negative way. I, I didn't want to say, ask, you know, who's never going to make it in trading, right? But I've got to ask it that way. But maybe I'm implying it somehow, you know, the people that do have it in them. Who are those people? I mean, I think it's not a DNA question in my mind. Okay. Um, yes, there are people who are more talented than others. That's that's a fundamental principle in performance. But the difference between the NBA and the NFL and you know the PGA Tour is you know and trading is there are a lot more people that can be successful. 
right? That is the cool thing, right? The barriers to entry are lower. We got to create some ourselves. But the bottom line is like there's a way more people that can be successful. So you don't have to have the most talent uh, to be able to, to kind of make it as a trader. Um, I think number one, you've got to be willing to be honest, right? It's it's hard, right? By and large, at least Western societies uh, experience overconfidence uh, at a higher than normal average, okay? Right? People want to believe that they're good at things and, and they want to believe that they're in control of their emotions. They want to believe that they're capable of executing a strategy. But by and large, right, overconfidence is an endemic problem, okay? And we could look at stats, right? You will get statistics on, on you know, how people rate themselves in terms of attractiveness or sense of humor or, uh, you know, uh, or dry, yeah, like all of it. I mean, it, you know, on average, like 70 to 75% of people think that they're above average. So 25% of people are wrong, right? And maybe more, right? Because there are oftentimes people who are, you know, underconfident and, rating themselves lower, even though they might have more skill. So the point is, right, it's, it's, it's in our nature often to want to think highly of ourselves, to be defensive, to deny problems that exist. And, and every single person that has been successful has had the willingness to say, I need help, I need work. And so here's, here's reality, right? It is impossible to be perfect for long periods of time. All of us have the ability to be perfect on any one day. I could give the perfect interview today, right? I could have the perfect coaching session today. You could have a perfect day trading or a perfect sales call, right? But when we when we start to span things out broader, right, there's always going to be relative weakness, even around the things that we would consider to be our strengths, right? That's an inherent thing. Why? Because we always have the ability to learn more. So if we can learn more, that means that something has to be weak, right? Maybe not now, but in the future, we're going to learn something that recognizes that you didn't know something. So right now, every single person that is, is listening to this, watching this, you have a weakness that you don't even know about. Frankly, Matt, you and I both have weaknesses that we don't know about right now. Right? So that, that's a fundamental principle of performance, of learning. So if you can embrace that idea and say it's not weak, to have a weakness, it's actually weak to not know your weaknesses. And so when I look at the the elite, they are ruthless at identifying their weaknesses and working on them. Okay, Tiger Woods was not the best player of all time. Okay, we can have debate. Okay, but not the best player of all time because his best was that much better than everybody else's. Okay. If you took the Phil Mickelson's of the world, the Ernie Ellis's of the world, like the, the best players that he was competing with, and all of them in a, in a tournament were playing their absolute best, what's the difference? Maybe it's like a tenth of a shot. Maybe. Maybe he's not even the best player. I mean, we can debate this. We'll never know, right? But to me, what Tiger's greatness was when he was off, he could be two or three shots better than everybody else when they were off. So... Why was that the case? Because Tiger was more ruthless than everybody else at finding his weaknesses and fixing them and correcting them. So, yeah, if you're striving to be great or striving to be good, if you don't know what your weaknesses are, you're going to get exposed. It's going to hold you back. And, and that's something that a lot of people don't really want to embrace. And I think it's a critical component to being successful is, is having that honesty, having the willingness to, to work on that stuff. 
And then having, you know, there's a good book out there, right, called Grit. It's not a, it's not a complicated concept. It's just having the willingness to go through the ups and downs that are inherent in the learning process to get to your goals, right? People think it's a straight line. It's chaotic, man. That's just part of it because we're, we're not, we don't know everything. We can't, you can't set, certainly not in trading, certainly not in poker, right? You can't set a plan and say, I'm going to go from here to there and have it hit every single time. Yes, some people can. But if you take that route, you're gambling with your process because you can't guarantee it. You're, gonna, you're just getting lucky if you get it all right. So invariably, every step of the way, you're going to learn more because you're going to learn more about what's weak, whether with yourself or with your system, about the market. The market's going to change. you got to start from scratch again. I mean, it's, it's a convoluted, complex process. So I think just to kind of summarize, having the honesty that you got weaknesses, having the ruthlessness to identify them and realize that they're, you're not, it's not an inherent weakness to feel to, to have them, it's just a fundamental part of nature. So let's just rip off the, the Band-Aid there and, and let's see what's there. Right? And then having the, the, the willingness and the grit to kind of fight through and pursue your goals. It, it's not, it doesn't take things that are, I, I think, um, uh, like an inherent from a DNA perspective. There are some people that are in you know, family environments, educational environments, coaching environments, and they get to learn some of these principles early on. Others have to learn it when they're older. I mean, I, I certainly had to learn a lot you know, north of 20 uh, to, to be able to uh, you know, achieve my goals. That is uh, really good advice. And, you know, when I was, uh, again, you know, when I was telling you that I was looking for a certain book about poker, I came across yours, and you know what? When I started reading the, you know, the, the intro to it and everything, you know, it was a focus on decision-making. The, the focus was on the decision-making, right? This is why I love your book, The Mental Game of Trading. I think you took it to the next level of decision-making. How to make better decisions for lack of a better word, in an unknown environment where nothing is guaranteed. How do you behave in it from, from that perspective? And you're right, I never thought about the aspect of how much you have to explore where you are weak. You know, so definitely, guys, I recommend. So, okay, we'll get to the third question. Okay, so here's the third question. How do Wall Street bets and social media get psychological pressure or wrong guidance to traders? And let me tell you why I'm asking you this question. Wall Street bets, you know, there's you know, there's a lot of people put it down and they say, you know, that they say all kinds of things about it. But the truth is there are some good posts that are found over there. And there are some smart people on the forum. But here's what I found interesting. The main categories on that one, there's a bunch of categories, discussion and meme and all that. But I found three categories. And here's what I'm I want to give you a context to my question. So I found one that says it's it's the uh, the category of YOLO, you only live once, gain, and loss. So in the YOLO, you see people who are going all in on everything, right? They'll believe in a certain asset class or anything to just go all in. The gain guys, they show gains that they've made also from going all in on something, right? In the insane amounts of money that they put in. I mean, for some people, it's lifetime savings, and they just go all in. And then you have the loss, where people, you know, I've never experienced in the history, I mean, I've been in the industry for 25 years, that people have boasted so much about their trade, about their losses. 
They're like, look, now I belong to the club. Like, it's okay. You know, it's okay. Look, I blew all my life savings. It's great. You know, so this interaction between the three, between those three categories is, is very puzzling to me. Because, first of all, it encourages, one is encouraging to take unnecessary risks. More of a, you know, an all-in approach. The gains, you know, people see that somebody got, you know, a lot of money from a one-time event. And the losses also, you know, they're kind of saying, yeah, well, it's okay if you lost. So I think today there's added pressure, well, maybe in this guidance when, when, when every, all the trading is within that social media and forums of people who, you know, sometimes I'm on certain forums and there's people there who come and ask a question, how do I start trading? And a month later, they give advice to everybody else how to trade, <laughs> you know? So it's like, here's what you do, and you cut your losses short, and you let your trends right. Like, all well, you know. So how, you know, you think the psychology of the people that you're working with today, is that external thing affects them? And if not your specific customers, if you can give specific examples, how do you think this whole social media thing affects the psychology of traders who are approaching this game? For the first yeah, time? and I mean, to go backwards a little bit, 100% I've worked with, with clients on this. In fact, actually, I was having a conversation with a trader earlier today who has made a lot of money, is a very good trader, and yet still at times can be influenced by seeing another trader post a significant win. You know, it's it's a little bit of a, uh, like, jealousy in a sense, which, you know, strikes him as being odd because he's been so successful. So my, my point is, like, traders at any level are not immune to the effects of that kind of social pressure. And so if we kind of strip back the layers and ask, okay, well, what makes somebody more vulnerable to it? And the reality is it's quite simple. Uh, it's weaknesses and confidence. And so why is somebody going to uh, post their loss, you know, the loss porn, right? That's as they call it there. Um, it's because they want to have some sense of community, right? They want to feel a belonging. And so, right, their confidence needs to be a part of a community in a way that's quite kind of counterproductive to their own interests, right? Or on the flip side, right, they need to post these huge graphs in order to get the praise and, you know, the heaps of idolization and lionization from other people. And then the YOLO crowd is the same deal, right? It's, it's you know, there's this this need for community, which, yeah, of course, as as human beings, as being a social species needs to be there. But I think that's a kind of an oversimplification is just saying it's just that, right? There's pieces of our confidence that need that kind of self-gratification. And, you know, without it, then we do things that are, you know, uh, seemingly random, seemingly irrational, seemingly against our own interests. Uh, but they're not against our own interests. They're just being uh, kind of attain, uh, obtained in a way that, uh, you know, is not really, you know, kind of optimal. So it's not an obvious statement and it's, it's, it's a more nuanced thing once you start to peel back the layers and say, okay, well, in, in what way is my confidence weak? But at least there you're having an honest conversation with yourself versus just, you know, kind of being sucked into the environment. Because, and I, I had this conversation with, with my daughter uh, yesterday, who was, you know, uh, afraid of being, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, made fun of for something. And I said, you know, it's different as a kid, but 
there's a piece of a lot of people who get sucked into social media that this is still true for, which is that negative comments hit us where we're weak. Okay. If I told you, Matt, that, you know, you're a, a purple dinosaur from the planet Bleeblop, I mean, not really going to make you feel too bad, is it? Right. But if I said something to you that pinged something that you felt bad about, now all of a sudden, right, that's the weakness. So it's not what I say, it's what you feel. So if you're trying to peel back the layers for your own confidence, right, you know, and I don't mean you, I mean people listening, right, if you want to peel back the layers, you ask yourself, where is it that I'm getting sucked in to social media, into these communities, right? And, and ask yourself the why question. Why is that? What am I defending against? What, do I, what am I worried about? Right. If this was exposed, right. If it, if the, you know, the, the person who's posting these, you know, massive graphs says, well, I wouldn't want people to think less of me. So I'm only going to post the big graphs. Well, peel back the layers. Why, why, why is it? Why do you feel bad? Right. We can go into the confidence chapter in the book and look at all the different reasons for why that's, why that's there. Sometimes it's an illusion of control. Sometimes it's perfectionism. Sometimes it's an illusion of emotional control. There's, there's lots of very practical reasons for it that have nothing to do with you on a personal level, that there's something wrong with you, right? But sometimes we have these faulty biases that then get, get exposed in a social media environment. And, and you know, the question is, do we have the ability to see, right, that, that your emotional reactions, that your actions are really indicative of those flaws? Or are you just kind of so consumed and sucked into it uh, that you can't really see the forest for the trees. You know what you mentioned about your um, your mentoring student and training that that is a good trader, and once in a while he gets sucked in into you know and seeing how others and maybe he gets jealous. That is really you know the heart of my question is that you know it's just my my well I should say my concern or my guidance to traders. I say well, to some degree, and correct me if I'm wrong, trading should be a lonely sport. You should really focus on yourself. You know, everybody will approach it from a different angle and from a different thing. Sure, it's good to, but I read a lot. I read a lot, right? I try to find good sources. Um, what, one thing that, you know, I try to read, and, and obviously it's in your case, it's people who are actually in the field. They're not coming from some hypothetical and theoretical and, and all that, you know, because I, I feel like even if traders are making, like you said, baby steps, small progress, moving from, demo trading to real trading and excellent advice that you gave that they should start hitting pressure on themselves and not just play back on it. You know, I'm just concerned that they're going to look at that and it's just going to throw them off their game. So, you know, I, 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 what I tell my customers is that when they mention anything where like they participate in a certain group, I always say, look, to a degree, it has to be a lonely sport, you know, focus on your focus, you know, on, on, on yourself. So, I appreciate it. Okay, we'll go to the next question. All right. Um, this is actually from your book. Is greed bad in trading? What does it make you overlook? So I'm not big in the like good or bad camp, right? Because a lot of things de depend. So uh, is greed bad? No, because it's based on ambition, right? Greed is bad in a societal environment because it creates imbalances. But on an individual level, 
for people who are striving to be their best and to to make the most money that they can, right? That's a that's a good aspiration, right? I, I think it's it's no different than Michael Jordan wanting to win all these NBA titles, right? We would never say that he was greedy because he dominated so much. I mean that we we appreciate that kind of level of of discipline and and work ethic and talent uh, to be as successful as he was. But now we look at like greed in a trading sense or even greed, you know, in other performance environments. And the reason it's it's problematic is because it costs you money. It costs you opportunity, right? In the long run, in the short term, yeah, it could actually lead to, to you making money. And that's that's kind of the inherent variance of, of the game. But in the long run, it costs you money. So that's why it's a problem. Do you think that sometimes when traders are in a certain trade that makes them money and the greed factor kicks in. I don't know if it's the greed factor. I'm not a psychologist. Maybe you know how to define it better. But I find that people who are in a successful trade, the greed factor kicks in and they just start imagining prices. They start imagining levels and prices or it could go and how much profit it will take them. Completely stores them off their game. You know, especially on trades that I would say go immediately in your favor and fast, right? I'm just, do you think that that's where I'm concerned for them? So that's where I mean greed. I love ambitious people. Um, I think ambition is a really good thing. But sometimes in the midst of trading, I feel traders sometimes, you know, I've been working with retail for a very long time, so I I don't want to generalize, you know, not everyone is like that, but I would say there's a certain group of people it's coming from somewhere. It's a sort of, sort of a weakness, and maybe didn't have this money before. Maybe. But well, I mean, so like, I guess to like give you a baseball example, it's like you're talking about the the guy that hits a single and constantly constantly trying to turn it into a double. I mean, yes. right. You know. So, the, the difference as a trader is, you know, you're not going to go back in the dugout, and the coach is going to tell you, "Dude, you did it again. Like, you do it again. You're benched." And, and so now he's got to create a, a better understanding of when is the right time to actually go for two versus just stay at first. So when is the right time to push a trade? Most often, it's not by your own doing. I mean, you set profit targets, right? And, and more often than not, if you adhere to it, that's how you make the most money. So what is going to push somebody to want to keep pushing those profit targets, right? It could be a feeling like it's never good enough. And the reality is that unless you fix the fundamental cause of that, then you're constantly going to be pushing your profit targets because even if you hit, uh, you know, 98% of the potential profit in a trade, you're going to see that, you know, it went a couple ticks higher and you could have gotten more and you're going to be dissatisfied. So sometimes greed is actually a fear of future dissatisfaction. I mean, because if you... That's a, that's a very... Int- I love when new concepts are introduced in, in a world that I think that I know. Is, <clears throat> but that's a great definition. That, that's really yeah, I mean, that, that's why. So, like, what, I mean, and I, and I talk about this in the book. Greed is, is, like, one of the shortest chapters in the book. And it's the reason is because there aren't really a lot of fundamental flaws that are unique to greed. We're changing greed to being excessive ambition. And then we can look at it on a, on a uh, you know, a trade-by-trade basis and see where you are violating your strategy. But we still got to understand why, 
right? And so it could be a more of a FOMO thing than it is about an actual greed thing, because or it could be a self-criticism thing, right? You know that you should have made more from the trade and you didn't, so now you're actually pissed off at yourself. It's not fear, it's anger, right? Or it's a confidence thing because you feel like, oh, okay, you're actually making it as a trader if you're able to actually maximize the profitability in every trade because you have this false assumption that great traders are getting 100% of the potential profit on every trade. And that's not true at all. But you have that in your head. So my, my point with, the, with this greed thing is like greed is not very um, complicated once we start to – sorry. Greed is, is more complicated once we start to strip away the emotion, right? But the emotion itself is is really – not coming from something that is greed-based. It's more coming from fear or anger or a lack of confidence or overconfidence. That's where it's coming from. And, you know, I describe four examples in the book, right, that match each one of those examples because there's just not anything that's that unique about greed. So, you know, spoiler alert, it's actually pretty boring. Um, you're right. You know, we, 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 I mean, us who are not in the, are uh, trained in psychology, you know, this is, and maybe that's the mistake that the whole industry does. They, they interpret everything as fear and greed. Fear and greed, that's because you were greedy. You were like, but you get to say, well, not exactly. You know, like, there's a different motivation here. You know, it drives you to do what you did, which is really excellent. Um, okay, uh, tell us a little bit about, um, uh, you know, I'm not going to reveal a lot of things in the book because I want people to read it. I really want people to read it. But there is a concept that you mentioned over there. Um, I'm going to ask a few questions of the concepts there without revealing everything in the book. Tell me a little bit about the inchworm concept that you came up with, you know, and, and how does it help trade? Yeah, so the inchworm concept, if, if those aren't familiar with, with an actual inchworm, okay, I know this sounds a little odd at first, but like there's a caterpillar that's, you know, small. It's about an inch long, but it kind of moves like this, right? It kind of lifts up and stretches its body and then anchors and then kind of picks up and does this like slinky action. And so an, an inchworm is basically a moving bell curve. And, and this concept is really important for understanding failure and understanding weaknesses in a much more practical, pragmatic way. So we've talked about this a few times already today. And, and so this concept for a lot of people can be kind of the breakthrough aha moment that helps to conceptualize their performance in a way that makes it easier to look at those tough days with a whole different perspective. Because what a lot of traders do, especially you know those that are um, you know in in the sim or maybe they're doing like a top step trader kind of combine, right? It's easy to just go delete, restart, and here we go again. Slate's clean. Today's a new day. Let's get after it. Or Take the traders who have that same mentality, you know, there, there's this ethos, right, that you've got to be optimistic and kind of very positive as you go into the trading day. And so, yeah, today's mistakes, those are in the past, you know, losses all in the past, like today's a new day, I'm going to kill it. Okay, yeah, but what is, what, is, what is reality? Reality is that you are not just your best or just your worst. You're the combination of that. So inchworm helps to kind of create this cohesiveness between your A game, your B game, and your C game, right? Concepts from sports, right? People talk about right being at their best, right? You're talking about being in your A game. You're talking about being at your worst, 
talking about your being in your C game. So what it does is it helps to create an understanding about how progress happens over time. And it happens the way that inchworms walk, which means that your A game gets better and your C game gets better. I would say that by and large, easily 70% of the people listening to this, the gap between your best and your worst is too wide. And for that simple fact, you experience more emotional volatility on a day-to-day basis. It's easier for you to get bored, burned out, to plateau with your learning, to have these big drawdowns and massive days where, you know, even kind of busting uh, accounts, right? Have huge, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of upswings and big days, you know, followed by uh, large drawdowns and, and, you know, huge volatility, both emotionally and uh, with P&L. And all of that is as, a, as a, a cost of having too big of a gap between your best and your worst. So what Inchworm teaches you is that in order for you to make progress, just like an inchworm, if you get, that inchworm gets too, stretched out too wide, it can't make progress anymore. You got to move the back end forward. You got to, as I say, suck less sometimes. So on days where it's really problematic and really, or sorry, not problematic, but really tough for you to be at your best, change the goal, right? Don't try to be at your best today. Try to just be a little bit better. Try to suck less because the more you suck less, the easier it is for you to have some strength at the back end and that creates the conditions for you to be at your best more often and then ultimately to have that progress even farther. was A, B, and C games. Uh, since you mentioned it already, can you just elaborate a little bit about that? What's an A game, a B game? Yeah, I mean, so game? the way that I would kind of expand on this is, right, so your A game is at your be- you at your best. In order to be at your best, your mental game, right, your mental and emotional functioning is going to be in a place where uh, things are kind of really optimized for you at that time. Now, yes, there, there may be more things that you could do to be better, Right, but that's kind of for the future, right? That's that's for your development, and, and so when you're in that state, your mind is allowing you to access your knowledge as best you can, right? It's it, when your mind is in a good place, when your emotions are in a good spot. Um, it's not your mental game that's making you perform well, right? It's your actual knowledge of your system, of the, of the markets, of of uh, you know the particular indicators that you're using, right? That knowledge gets to be accessed. On the flip side, in your C game, your mental and emotional functioning is so poor that all of that knowledge becomes inaccessible or large chunks of it become inaccessible. And that is why you fail, right? So we work a lot on the fear and the greed and the confidence and the motivational issues and the focus and the burnout, right? Because if those things are present, you know, in your C game, then you lose the ability to access the skills and knowledge you know, that you have at your disposal. And that is why the mental game is so important because it's not, it's like those mistakes are not because you're dumb. They're not because you don't know how to make money. It's because you're impaired. It's almost like you're, like you're an injured athlete, you know, trying to, uh, you know, a football player trying to tackle somebody, uh, but you, you've got a huge contusion to your upper thigh. And so you just can't run as fast, right? So it's it, the mental... Uh, an emotional piece of this damages our decision-making process by making our knowledge inaccessible. You know, honestly, I never thought about what you just described. And it's just so 
nice and refreshing <laughs> and profound. You're so right, because you know, if, if you have such strong emotions about something, you can't access your treasure box, your method. You know, you can't even access it if you're emotional. It's interesting that people always ask, what do you think is more important, psychology or your method? And you know, and, and what you described is the right answer. If your state of mind is wrong, you can't access your method. It doesn't matter what it is. But if, but if your but if your state of mind is perfect and you've got no system, so I mean I think it, it's not it's both like that like not ninety percent mental it's not ninety percent technical it depends on where you are in your development it's both okay we can end that argument but I'm glad that uh, my perspective here is is helpful. No, it's it's good. What you're saying is you got to be stable emotionally to access. Yeah, your and then you got to put the work in to develop a method so that you can have. Like something I can actually work. I mean, I always made the joke in golf, right? There's a reason the Dalai Lama can't break a hundred. He's just not a good golfer. It does like golf is not ninety percent mental. Trading is not ninety percent mental. You gotta have skill. That's a good thing, you know. If somebody asks me, you know, next time I'm gonna steal this joke completely. You know, is it psychology or method? I would say. Well, listen, the Dalai Lama is a big trainer. Yeah, he's dead. Yeah. Look, the Dalai, the Dalai Lama's got a lot of FOMO. No. <laughs> okay, so um, my next question. Okay, so maybe I'll skip this one. Do you think we covered it? What is wrong with our emotions that are counter? No, it's actually, I want to discuss this. What is wrong with our emotions that are counterintuitive to training? So, you know, why gut feeling, things of that nature, and our emotions that are, this is what I thought when I wrote this question. You know, people rely on their gut in business, for example. Their guts lead them through their life. Now, I don't know if they have some sort of confirmation bias, that their gut always led them to the right decision, but at least they feel that way. They say, you know what, I can shake hands with somebody and I can tell if he's a good guy or a bad guy. So a lot of people, I would say, rely in day-to-day -day life on their emotions, their gut feeling, their intuition, why is it such a weakness in training? Why is it becoming a weakness? So we have to, I think, kind of try to operationalize what we're even talking about. And this is actually a topic that I wanted to expand a lot more on in the book, but it just didn't fit. So I actually created a free ebook. No, it's actually on my website now. You can download it for free. Um, so yeah, okay. I'll send you a copy later. But yeah, I mean, anybody who's listening, go to jaredtendler.com. You can download the Download the PDF um, on intuition, and it's it's a companion to the mental image trading. And they can buy this book. They can as well, yeah. Right? For sure, yep, exactly. Yes, exactly. So, so. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, so the reason that intuition is difficult is for what you're what you're talking about, right? There's a feeling that justifies a decision. Okay. But the reality is that our C game creates a feeling that makes our decisions justified even though those decisions are garbage, which makes it C game. Our, our, our A game creates a feeling that justifies a decision, but there's a very distinct difference in the emotional and mental experience of A game intuition versus C game gut feeling. I mean, and, and if you take the time to map those differences, you will start to see 
that real pure intuition, right, is really what we're after. But emotions can masquerade as intuition. They can make us feel justified in saying this is right, but it turns out, no, the only reason I think this is a valuable trade is because I'm revenge trading the market because I'll be goddamned if I'm going to let this market stop me out for the third, third time in a row. This trade idea is still viable. I'm going to make it work. That's not intuition. <laughs> That's just you being tilted and emotional. And, and so what's the experience when you actually have real intuition and you see something the market doesn't yet, right? Sometimes there's not even kind of full logical rationale for why it's just this sense. But the sense is not angry. There's not like your heart, you know, there's not tension in your head. It's like more of like a curious kind of like, wow, state. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just saying that's what some people, you have to look for yourself. What's the difference between the real intuition versus the emotion masquerading as intuition? Some intuition is that we think it's intuition, it's yeah. emotion, Yes. And, and then there are other people who, who look at intuition and they continually um, reject it. They don't, they don't trust it. Well, why don't they trust it? Well, because they don't know what the heck it is. So in the intuition ebook, I go into like more precise detail as like what intuition is in a very practical, pragmatic way. Because if you understand what, like where intuition is coming from within your brain and realize that it's not random, then you're more likely to trust it because at a minimum, you're going to learn something. Whereas if you're, if you're like a lot of traders, especially ones that have fear, right, they, they often are just constantly going against their gut and then getting self-critical when they go against their gut because they missed that opportunity again. But when you can understand what intuition is, it becomes like the stranger that you get to know that turns out to be quite smart and, and educated and you should start getting some trade ideas from. You know, everything you say makes absolute sense and I'll tell you why. Because I often wonder why successful traders at times say, look, I have an intuition about this and I have an intuition about that. And, and, it, and I was always pro or against, you know, intuition. But, but when I heard I'm sorry, when I heard not so successful traders say the same thing, I was like, how is this guy's intuition working for him? This guy's intuition is not working for him. But now I understand because a successful trader is using intuition and, and, and the ones that, I don't want to call them unsuccessful, but let's say to stay positive. Not profitable yet. Not profitable yet and on the way hopefully to become that. You know, they're not using their intuition. That's emotion. So I, I always thought, yeah, this guy's intuition, this guy's intuition, completely different. This guy's just emotional. As you said, this guy's is an intuition, but there is real intuition that comes from real life experience. 100%. 100%. Awesome. Okay, so we explained that. Okay, let's talk about uh, journaling. How significant is a journal for trading? What kind of notes traders should take when they execute their trades? At the end of the day, by the way, you know, just to, to you know, when I, when I discuss things with newcomers that come to Optimus Futures and, you know, they want to trade a leverage product, you know, I tell them, look, your day does not end when you finish trading. This is not your opportunity to go on the couch and catch on old episodes of Jerry Seinfeld with a bag of chips, right? You have to take notes of exactly what you did. Now, I've read somewhere, okay, and you'll correct me if I'm right or wrong. 
that it's more important to write more on the days that you've done well, so you can train your, your mind for that positivity and the pattern of success that you've experienced, as opposed to negative days. So tell me about journaling, and then, you know, what do you think about writing on good days? Yeah, I mean, I think journaling is really important because you are... Uh, giving yourself an opportunity to learn in a more conscious and active way, right? The mind has a limited capacity for how much it can process and digest at one time. And so if you're the kind of person who struggles to kind of separate trading from the rest of your life, right? And, you know, you're constantly kind of thinking about trades as you're, you know, hanging out with your family or going to a movie or with friends or whatever else, right? And you need to, let's say, go work out or go for a hard, you know, run um, to just kind of get your mind away from it. You know, then what happens when you kind of your head hits the pillow and you try to go to sleep and your mind's kind of continuing to digest and unfold? Journaling helps the brain to digest the information of the day. That's one. Two, you can think about trading as like taking a test, right? You got to grade the test. You got to actually see how you did. You can't grade the test while you're actually going through it. And PNL is a poor grade of your performance. On a day-to-day basis, it's not telling you the full picture. So I think one of the one of the key things that you know, I have my clients do, and I certainly recommend in the book, is to look at the parameters for for which you are trying to improve, right? So here we talked about, let's say not, you know, there's not enough instances where I'm trusting my intuition or my gut. So I want to get better at that. There are too many times where I'm letting FOMO, you know, kind of guide me and, and, you know, getting me into trades that I shouldn't belong, or I'm sitting on the sidelines too much. So we, we kind of pick some of these data points where you're trying to improve your execution, your performance, your decision making. Afterwards, how'd you do? Right? Of course, you can take notes throughout the day on those points, but at the end, you want to look more pragmatically at how you did. And if there were you know, uh, more data that you learned about those that are going to help you tomorrow, write it down. Right, That's part of my system. Right, Being able to become more precise and aware about the situations where the, those problems occur right, is an iterative process. Right, You need to learn more and more about why those things are happening, when they're happening, and what's showing up mentally and emotionally, so you can kind of map that and become more more precisely aware. So journaling helps you to gather that data, make sense of it, so it doesn't become overwhelming. So you can kind of iterate on it day to day, and and be able to grade your performance. Uh, you know, and you can do the same thing from just a pure trading sense, right? Here are the types of trades you saw, you know, in your pre market. Uh, warm up. Here's what you were looking for. Here was your sort of expectation or assessment of, uh, of the viability of certain trades. What you're looking for. What panned out. How'd you do when when those trades, uh, those opportunities came. Where was the hesitation? Where was the uh, you know uh, uh, the the uh, you know re-entering positions you should not have. Where were you taking profit prematurely? Where were you letting it ride too long? Right. We can look around the, your mistakes and gather more information about them. And then to your point about journaling about good things. I don't know that it's necessarily just about uh, reinforcing positivity. I think at a bare minimum, we're looking at the learning. And people kind of take the learning for granted on a good day. They say, ah, there was actually nothing for me to learn. I just did what I was supposed to do. Well, reality is you still did something that was notable. Figure out how. What did you do to get there? Maybe you uh, zoom yourself out and see, ah, what was it over the prior two weeks that led you to have such a good performing day, right? And you can look at it more of a confirmation of that work and, and then a reinforcement of that, doing more of that. I don't know that you necessarily have to write more on those days, right? Because there may be actually less to learn. But I think the importance of actually just doing that 
and, and confirming what you were doing well, for most traders, it's just about actually doing that because they just take it for granted and then move on without actually grabbing hold of anything. So something is better than nothing in that regard. I, I, I agree with you. Just to give a little plug to my company here, you know, we developed a, a, a free training journal for people to take notes where they can see their PNL, you know, just uh, a few ratios that they can follow. But it's basic, but it allows them, you know, but we did allow for room for notes. Because I know that's very important to say, hey, what have I, like you said, what have I learned that day? You know, did I execute? You know, here were my levels before. Did I execute those levels, you know, when the market was open? If not, then you have to think why and, and those sort of things. And I think as you read through your notes, you will also start noticing a pattern of the way you think and whether it's aligned with the market or not because you know but most traders think yeah i've learned you know they shut down the screen today i've learned okay i'm not gonna do it tomorrow well what are you gonna, gonna do tomorrow you know by the time you sleep you'll forget you know you might you know which at, at the end of this interview i think i'm, I'm gonna quote one sentence you said which is very <laughs> profound at that point okay so we discussed journal okay um Confidence. How to keep confidence at the right level? Not to be too cocky, overconfident. How do you become, or not that you can be perfect at it, but to the best of one's ability. How do you keep confidence at the right so level? So we got to first understand that confidence is an emotion. Confidence is it's an emotion, emotion right? It's like anger. Okay. It's like fear. Yes. It's like greed. It's like any other emotion that we have. But, and in a performance environment, we want that emotion. Um, oh, sorry. So, if that emotion is not, you know, in a, in a, I mean, confidence is different because we want to have it in a in a pure form. We don't want to have pure anger, but we want to have confidence in a pure form. So, how do we do that? We remove the flaws that create the oscillation from overconfidence or underconfidence, right? If we're going to get rid of anger, we understand that anger is not the problem. Anger is the symptom of an underlying flaw, like some of the ones I've mentioned already. So when it comes to confidence, why are you going to get ahead of yourself and be more overconfident, right? So you could have uh, like a premature realization of your skill. You think you're better than you are. Well, why is that occurring? Well, it could be because you want to believe that you're better than you are. It could be a little bit of a confirmation bias, right? And, 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 and that may be becoming out of a and need to prove yourself to other people because people have been questioning you for a long time. They didn't think you could do this and you need to prove them wrong. So that's a flaw that's gonna create overconfidence. It also can create a lack of confidence too. But my point is you start identifying the causality of your overconfidence or lack of confidence and you correct the flaws that produce those, those you know emotional reactions and by default, your confidence becomes more stable and more grounded and more realistic and pure. So you don't go after confidence by boosting your self-esteem when you're low or bringing yourself back down to reality when you're too high. That's a counterbalance. That's more of like a band-aid versus like actually creating something that's going to be sustainable, right? You want to be some, you want to have something that's going to sustain you through the highs and lows that can be kind of like, you know, your, your anchor while you're in a, in a tornado in a sense, like the, could, the market is going to swirl around and make your head spin sometimes. How are you going to keep yourself solid and, and, you know, kind of precise with, 
with your trading. The, the way you're going to do that is by stripping away the flaws that create the emotional volatility, whether it's with confidence or anger or anything else. success stories of the guys you, you mentored. You, you mentioned some of them in, in, in the book, but you know, I, I want to encourage people you know, to work on themselves, right? So I don't want people to feel bad. You know, sometimes I'm torn as a broker, right? Because not a lot of brokers do what I do, which is really, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying other brokers are not honest or anything like that. Uh, you know, there's a good group of honest brokers in the industry. But I think, you know, nobody discusses the, the, the weaknesses or the mental issues that, that people come to in, in, into this game. So I, I don't want to sound, you know, I'm always afraid of sounding negative, you know, if I, and that's not my intention. So my intention is really to be positive and say, look, if you recognize that there's certain issues, you'll work on them, and hopefully you'll improve it, and hopefully you'll be a lifetime customer of mine, because it's in my best interest for a customer to be successful. Yeah, you're looking for the you're looking for the win wins. It's always, you know, in, in order for them to win. You know, first I want them to win. So tell us a little bit about the success stories you had with traders. I know you mentioned some futures traders too. Tell me, without revealing who they are, of course, and keeping them confidential. You know, tell us a little bit about what issues they had, how you are able to to help them to go to the next level. Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk about one who. Um, you know, was a, a, a guy who uh, really was trying to combine algorithmic trading uh, with some discretion. And, you know, the difficulty for him was recognizing the right time to intervene and override what the algorithm said, you know, and, you know, it, a lot of it came down to um, some perfectionism for him, right? There was this profound sense that he needed to get it right. And, and it, believing that that as we talked before that his desire to kind of override the algorithm was justified intuition versus a fear of making a mistake or fear of, of failing ultimately and and for him in particular that fear of failing really kind of dovetailed into some we'll, we'll say like a little bit of scar tissue from growing up poor and and not wanting to be poor again and seeing trading as his opportunity to make a life for himself and and so you know on a trade by trade basis failing you know kind of dovetailed right into the sense that he was not going to be successful and so when we were able to kind of strip away and and kind of remove that uh, the idea that that kind of failure was even an option anymore right that uh, he had been too successful to this point, right? It wasn't like he had achieved the success that he wanted to, but, you know, it certainly achieved enough and had proven himself as a, as a trader, right? At this point was profitable for years, uh, running a firm, um, uh, and, and, and had clients, right. And managing other people's money. So there was a lot of kind of objective things that said, you know, you're actually quite successful. And yet internally he hadn't quite, uh, recognize that. So, you know, that was, that was kind of the big turning point. And then, and then we kind of ironed out the execution errors. Right. But I think a lot of times 
for, for many traders, they kind of have to get the foundational piece set first. I actually had a conversation uh, with a woman today who's been trading for years and, and her issue was, was quite similar. Now, this was our first session, so uh, I can't say where it's going to go. But for anybody listening, right, when you're able to kind of figure out foundationally what needs to happen first, then everything else gets easier from there. That, that's, that's the thing that I have the most skill as a coach. And what I tried to do in the book was to make it easy for you to kind of navigate your way through to figure out, ah, this is the issue that I'm having and here's why it is why it's occurring. Uh, I'm not saying that that's as easy for you to do as it is for me because I've got a lot more experience doing it, but, but the whole point of the book is for you to be able to do that. So when you're able to kind of find that foundational piece that's off, sometimes it might mean there's some personal things that you're bringing into trading. And if you're a newer trader, right, you don't have enough experience, you know, kind of in this game yet. You haven't developed enough problems there. Sometimes it may be the things that you're kind of bringing to the game and you can be a bit self-reflective, right? Why, why are you motivated to trade? Are you trying to prove something? Is, are you looking for trading to, to give you something on a day-by-day basis that it really can't give you, like confidence, like a sense of, of value or, or, or self-worth? I'm not saying that that's true for everybody, but there's certainly a portion of people looking. Now, is that a bad thing? No, it's no, you can look. But on a day-by-day basis, you, you ain't going to get it. It's not going to happen, right? You've got to put in the work over the long term to create the kind of solid confidence uh, you know, that you ultimately deserved. And for the trader that I was mentioning today, uh, you know, she hasn't quite gotten there yet to prove it. But there's enough there that can be valued and can be built upon. For the first client that I mentioned, no, he actually had a lot of it. He just wasn't believing that what he had was actually worthwhile. Um, you know, I find, and this is not just in trading, if, if somebody has been through some sort of an extreme point in his life, like poverty, they made a lot of money, you know, it's really, really hard. It's not just for people in trading to say, look, you're never going to be poor again. They will always have this fear. It's an underlying fear that will be there because when you're poor and you have to make decisions, and you don't have a lot of money. It's a very difficult situation. It's obviously I don't want anybody ever to experience it, but I can tell you when I finished university, I wasn't in the best place in my life, and it took really a lot of hard work. But I have to tell you, I have sometimes, you know, I'm okay, you know, not here to brag, but I want to tell you, I totally relate to that fear, and it keeps me motivating and, and working like an animal because I'm scared. You know, and do I have a reason? No, you know, but it's just, it's very hard to overcome that. But I, uh, but I'm very, but I'm also very conscious when it comes to financial decisions that I have that. One question I do have about this gentleman, um, you said he's algo trading. Was he a, a good discretionary trader prior to developing his algo? Or he was just a little bit of a meth wizard that just went straight into algo? More, more of the latter. Yeah, he was more the the algo the algo fed the discretion, not the discretion feeding the algo. Okay, because there's a lot of guys that sometimes would call, I need, I, need a, I need a programmer to code something. I'm like, do you have a method? No. It's like, so who do you want him to program? Or they'll say, I have a method, but I want somebody to program. Said, is this method making money? They're saying it's making money, but I'm too emotional. Yes. 
and I tell them, and, and, and then I tell them, look, if you're going to put it into a program, in automation, you're not going to be less emotional. You'll go through drawdowns and you'll deactivate. Exactly. You know, so so it's not a solution. So I was, I was just curious if you went from uh, uh, that's why I asked if you had a successful discretionary system. You went into algo. Okay, so uh, let me see. We spoke about that. Okay, spoke about that. Okay. How important is it to be a conscious person and attribute things right? Let me tell you what, what you know, I, I mean by that. You know, you talk about a lot of psychological aspects here when somebody trains, right? And I'm sure with your guidance, they can do it much better than on their own. But just generally speaking, do you find that people that are, is there a level of consciousness that people can recognize their mistakes better than others? and their strengths better than others. Yes. I mean, I think it's we can consider it, you know, to be a talent, right? Some people were just naturally have that ability. Others were forced to learn it because of the environments they grew up in. So they may have been, you know, kind of trained in a way. Um, but it's a skill that can be learned, right? The book talks about how to actually do that. You know, and the easiest way to get started is to pinpoint the mistakes that you know that you're making and start gathering up data around those mistakes. And so it's not about developing better consciousness. It's about developing a skill set to see patterns from a mental and emotional standpoint. And you need to be trained on how to do that because most people, it's not, it's not natural for them to do. But to me, that skill is no different than the skill of a trader being able to kind of read the market and identify opportunity, right? I mean, I'm skilled at being able to recognize the patterning and the language and the way people talk about problems. And I have new clients fill out a questionnaire and I'm pretty good at being able to understand, you know, around what we're going to work on just from, you know, uh, eight to 10 pages that they've written uh, around their problems uh, before even talking to them. And, and that makes the beginning of the process way more efficient. But the point being, right, that I've learned the skill. I was, you know, as a golfer, you know, I mean, I, yeah, okay, I was youngish, right, 19, 20, 21. I mean, I was a dumbass, right? I, I didn't know my emotions. I just knew I was failing. I, I mean, so I'm like not a psychologist by trade. I didn't grow up wanting to be in this profession, right? I, I had to learn it. So it's not my natural competency. And I think that's, you know, you, you mentioned the pragmatism around the, the book. It's like, I want things to be very practical because that's what I needed as an athlete, uh, you know, back in the day. It wasn't, helping me, right? The, the, the advice wasn't enough. I needed the practical solutions to get there. So yeah, this stuff can be learned. You just have to have the willingness to get started and focusing on the mistakes that you're making, you know, is a great place to start because if you're making mistakes that you know, you shouldn't be making that's C game. And that is caused by something mental and emotional. It's not a tactical problem. If you know that it's a problem, you have enough tactical knowledge to know that it's a problem. So it must be mental or emotional. Well, I'm happy you evolved in this profession <laughs> because I often, I, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I often tell young people, you know, when I talk to them, I say, they say, I don't know what I want to do. And I don't know what I want to do. And I tell them, do what you're strong at. You know, what you love does not always mean that you're going to be the best at. But if you're good at something, this is where you go because this is where you'll be able to excel. You know, they don't like my, I would say, approach that's like, what do you mean? What if I don't like it? Well, who cares if you don't like it? 
You're amazing at it. You know, you're and it's always the starting point. Yeah. It's a, it I mean, because it's it's like it's like a trade. You don't learn from the sidelines. Sometimes you just got to get in the game and do it in order to learn more and get feedback, so you can figure out how to navigate yourself through this crazy world or through a trade. Well, I'm happy, nevertheless, that you join this because I think you'll be able to add. You're young, and you'll be able to add a lot to traders who will need your help because I I feel that you know today. We have, I'm not saying the trading was ever easy, but I've explained something to my traders. I would say, look, a profitable trade is not just a trade that you make money. A profitable trade is you, where you took an advantage of a certain anomaly that you were able to take advantage of. It could have been a five-minute anomaly. It could be a five-year anomaly, a good company if you invested in, or it could be a, a one-minute of some sort of an indicator that, that does that. And and, and, and basically, this is how you, and, and this is the trade that you need, you know, to, to recognize that, right? You need to recognize that a profitable trade is always recognizing those anomalies. Now, equipment today, you know, recognizes it fast. HFTs recognize it fast. You know, the market, I don't see an ad in Wall Street Journal, we need traders. They hire statisticians, mathematicians. People who are, you know, who know quantum physics, you know, who can write formulas, and, and or people who can gather data that the machine reads it so fast. So their challenges are up against a competition that is very competent and very smart. So I'm really happy there's people like you in the industry that could, I have to say, legally write, that could potentially, you know, take them to the level that they need to be in order to play with those things. The last thing I would say, I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, you mean you're right in potential, right? Because I, I, I can't be in control of other people, right? The book is, as you said, right, read it several times. But at the end of the day, you also need to put the work in, right? You need to put the work in to be a competent trader. You need to be put the work in to be skilled in the mental game. So, I mean, and, and at the end of the day, you, you, people don't want it any other way. I mean, there's a great episode of The Twilight Zone where... Uh, this guy gets, uh, you know, it's a bank robber, gets killed, goes to what he thinks is heaven. He's given this palace and uh, anything that he would want. And, you know, this is back in the 60s. So, you know, he's smoking, he gets women, right? And, you know, uh, gets all the nice cigars. He goes to the casino, gets blackjack every time, pulls the slots, money comes out. Okay, thinks he's in heaven. Three weeks later, you see him again. All right, whatever. Everything's too easy, right? There's no joy in, in the wins because they just came too easy. The booze, the, 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 uh, the, the money, the women, it means nothing to him. And it turns out he's in hell. So my point is that if things came too easily, then guess what? They're going to disappear. They're gonna, you're, you're not going to value it. It's not going to have the kind of permanence. The people, they don't have to be the most successful. The ones who have the, the the greatest feeling about their success are the ones that have a sense of satisfaction for the work that they put in and, and the pride that comes out of it. I'm working with another trader today as well, right? Very successful, but, you know, recognized that there was something missing and was having all these problems. It turns out he just, again, wasn't recognizing, you know, the pride and satisfaction that that came from his hard work. So it is about potential. You can't make guarantees. 
just like I can't make guarantees. It's about putting in the work and, you know, the resources that I've provided with this make it easier, but it can't make it simple. This is not the matrix. You can't just download the information in your brain and, and be solved here. Right. And, and you wouldn't want it that way either because, you know, you wouldn't have the kind of sense of self-satisfaction that would come with it. You know what? Yeah. It's, I always tell people, you know, a sense of purpose, you know, and, and, and you know, it's interesting what you mentioned that you have successful traders who come to you, which is really, you know, it's, it's good because, you know, even people that are good at what they do, they recognize that they have certain weaknesses, you know, and they don't become arrogant about it. You know, they still, still have days that they're setbacks, they recognize their setbacks. Um, it leads me, it's not a question, but, you know, the last thing that, you know, I, I, uh, I wrote here something that, that you mentioned in the book. Let me just go and scroll there for a minute. Um, you said, I know one of my questions here was, can people control, you know, their emotions? But I think you covered a lot of that. But, and, and I know I, I took a lot of your time. And I don't want to take any more. I want to be conscious of your time. But this is not a question, but this is something that is really important. So you said recognition is not equal control. So going back to those successful people, you know, they're smart. They got to the level where they're actually profitable in trading. They recognize it, and they're still not in control. And so it, it's interesting that this is a game that the challenge here is always to keep on improving, you know, your behavior and understanding. And in 10 years, the same trader correct me if I'm wrong, could still be very successful, but will work with you on a totally different thing that bothers him because in the next 10 years, he might experience something that that would affect him in a different way. That's what how he's being affected today. 100%. Yeah, no, I've worked with clients for decades, uh, not decades, but over 10 years, and, and that's it, right? And the ones that, you know, again, whether we're talking poker, trading, golf, Right? There is a continual evolution. We always have weaknesses. We always have things that we could be better at. The weaknesses could be, no, I'm not actually not getting in the zone enough. Right, My focus could be better. So the weaknesses don't have to be necessarily problems. They could be the inability to be at our best as often as we want. So you know, recognition is the first step. Control comes through competency, comes through skill, which requires continual application while you're trading. And, and at that point, right, once you develop some proficiency as a trader executing trades or improving your focus, reducing your anger, you know, whatever it is, that's where the control starts to starts to happen. But ultimately, what you want in the long run is for that control to go away and for the automaticness of your focus, of your tilt control, you know, of your proficiency or your execution of this type of trade to be automatic, right? You want it to be like riding a bike because that then frees you up to take on the next thing and improve in the next way, right? If there was, you know, 10 things that you're trying to work on, you're not going to be able to, you know, improve on all of them all at once, right? You got to, you know, kind of check, check the boxes, solve this one thing, and then you can move on to the next thing. So recognition is the beginning, control is step two, and then eventually you get to the point where it's automatic and then you get to do the whole thing over again. something you know that, that you mentioned kind of so you make your customers or potential customers fill out a questionnaire 
And so I bet that you are in a lot of situations that traders come to you and say, you know, this is my problem. And it's not a problem. So this is why you ask them to, to fill out a questionnaire to say, let me determine your problem. So what I'm getting at is that sometimes traders, you know, this is why I recommend to read your book, might not know what their problem is. They might be focusing all their trading career on something that they shouldn't be focused on. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think if we look at, so at this point, like, I would not recommend that anybody came to me for coaching until they read the book because a decent chunk of them will be able to self-diagnose and solve their problems using the book. And that's my goal. I can't work with everybody. So, but then the people that come to me now that I'm like best suited for is, Hey, I've done this work. Here's what I've found. I haven't been able to crack the code yet. Help me out. And that's, that's when I'm at my best because we're, we're dealing with a lot of good data and, and, you know, then I also know that I can prescribe them sections of the book that there are, are more applicable to them than they thought, or I can kind of augment it with things that weren't in the book. Cause the only stuff I put in the book were the things that were the most, you know, common across the trading sphere. There's always these kind of like outlier situations that are kind of nuanced and unique. And that's just, it's going to make the book 500 pages and not really that, mu that much more productive. So, uh, you know, there's always those outliers, but by and large, a majority of people, uh, are going to be able to solve their issues using the book. The ones that can't, you know, come find me. Understood. So what I wanted to tell you is, first of all, I want to say thank you for this interview. It was really one of the interviews that I really enjoyed the most because it's a, it's learning for me as well. And from your angle, it's you said some things that really made it fairly clear in my mind. Like you said, there's always I'm always concerned with you know certain interpretations that I might have had, like we spoke about intuition between successful and not, and then we spoke, you know, trading versus methodology, and we're considered that bait psychology shuts you down from reaching your A game, which is really good. Um, and I want to tell everyone, nobody gets rich by writing books. <laughs> well, what Jared did here, and they might be surprised because they think, they don't understand how much goes to the publisher, but what Jared did in this book, really comes from, I, I feel like what you did here comes from the heart. To go to this level of details and to have all those scenarios that people can actually recognize, it's a gift. Honestly, how much was this book? 40 bucks. I don't know, it's 40 dollars? It's like, it says here, guys, this is just, come on, it's, it's, it's one point in the immediate of me. Read the book three times, get it on audio, you work out, which is quietly listen to it. You know, I took notes. I actually took notes when I was when I was, I found it so fascinating because first time I was like, okay, I'll listen to it. And then you got more into it. And uh, I know you got tortured a little bit reading the whole thing, right? That must have been uh, quite a task. So, um, so again, I wanted to thank you for your time. And, and I, I really hope that people will get this book. Um, and I hope that you'll come on future, um, you know, podcasts and, and interviews. And I know that one day you'll write number two. I know that you will. Look, I mean, I think you'll end up working with a lot of customers. You know, I think that, you know, people will recognize you in, in, in the industry and, and how much you can help them. And then you'll, you'll get for yourself another set of, uh, you know, I would say observations of obstacles that they go through, you know, because they're so psychological and can go in so many different ways. Maybe you'll have enough material for the next one. So 
Thank you for your time. Really Thanks, Matt. Great to talk with you. Thank you for listening to the Optimist Futures podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. You can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, all under the username Optimist Futures. If you have any questions, feel free to send us an email to support at OptimistFutures.com or give us a call directly at 561-367-8686 or toll free at 1-800-771-6748. Once again, thank you for listening to the Optimist Futures podcast. Please remember that this matter should be viewed as a solicitation to trade. Trading futures and options involves substantial risk of loss and is not suitable for all investors. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. You should therefore carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your financial condition. Optimist Futures LLC is not affiliated with, nor does it endorse any trading system, methodologies, newsletter, or similar service. We urge you to conduct your own due diligence.